Hey, thanks for listening to our podcast. If you want to listen live in the central Indiana area, you can hear us on 93.5 FM and 107.5 FM. And on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline right now, Joel A. Erickson of the Star joins us. I, I guess there's no doubt that Jim Irsay is more times than not incredibly outspoken, but I guess it does surprise me a little bit. He is the only one to stand there and yeah, basically, in this case, come off the top rope uh, regarding all the owners of the NFL on top of Daniel Snyder. Did that equally surprise you today? Um, I think that it's it's surprising that, that an owner came out and said something. I, I think it, as it as I'm looking at it and going through it, I think that it's it's probably less surprising that it's coming from Ursa. That whether or not Dan, the, I mean, there was a ESPN report that Daniel Snyder has threatened to out owners on some of the stuff that people don't know about them. Whether or not that that's true, whether or not that's true. A lot of Jim Mercer's dirt is already in the public eye. There's no and, doubt, and is is past and is stuff that's that's honestly, you know, it's it's addiction. It's stuff that um, has a component of, uh, you know, it's it's a component of you know stuff that's an illness as opposed to, you know, some of the stuff that Snyder's accused of. And then on top of that, I just think I find myself sitting here and reading these quotes and just thinking about. Every time we talk to Ursay, he talks about the history of football, uh, the history of the NFL going back to beyond when he was in charge of the Colts, back to when he was a kid. And I think that that's part of this is um, he just has such great reverence for the game. And the Washington franchise is one that used to be a pillar of the, of the NFL. Uh, and so I think that, that that knowledge of history plays into this. Uh, and why he's speaking out right now. Because football, you can say a lot of things about Jim Irsay, but the NFL and football mean a lot to him. To Joel Erickson of the Star regarding uh, uh, the outspoken Jim Irsay just uh, minutes ago from the owners' meetings in New York City, the fall owners' meetings. And Joel, via the Andy Moore uh, Automotive Group hotline, I want to get back to something that you said. I had a, uh, a Twitter follower, and I think this is rightly so, reference the movie Eight Mile. Uh, a little bit earlier with that final rap competition that Eminem had in that film, basically, you know, shouting out to his counterpart, uh, I know what you know about me and says it all in front of him. So yeah, clearly that was what you brought up as the case. All of, you know, the past stuff with Jim Irsay is, again, past stuff, and there's no concern, as he also mentioned in a quote, that he could be investigated by Daniel Snyder until the cows came home, and there's nothing there. So he had no fear whatsoever with the past coming about with this in mind. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, I saw another tweet. Uh, obviously, it's hard when we're not there to, to give a lot of context, but I did see a tweet from Al- Albert Breer that said that, that Pete Ward is there, NFLPR is there. So um, this is this was calculated. This yeah, was, it was something that he thought about doing. Um, this is, you know, a, a lot of times I think I, I think that he's, you know, talks off the cuff, and um, I think most Colts fans are used to it. But when – when Pete's there and this is a topic that they're talking about, I think it's probably something that he thought about in advance. You think now, um, you think now you'll see other owners kind of back him up on this, or will everybody else remain quiet? I think that there is a group of owners that is more public and more available, and that maybe some of them start saying something. But there's just there's probably I don't know. 
something like 20 owners that you just never hear from ever on anything. And I wonder if, I wonder if even, even in a situation like this, if they just continue to do that, but you know, uh, Philadelphia's owner is a guy that I know has, has spoken in, in the public before Baltimore's. Um, I think that there's a chance that, that with this going on, I think that you start to see a few more of those guys who've been in the limelight a little bit more come forward. There's just, there's just so many owners that don't, they don't say anything at all about anything, even their own teams. Joel Erickson, the star, regarding the outspoken today, Jim Mercer, Colts owner at the owners' meetings in New York City, uh, regarding the continued investigation and removal of Commanders owner Daniel Snyder. And I, I agree with you this being being calculated as well because Pete is, is also there. And, and also, as we talk about, you would think that the temperature was taken in that owner's room and you know this is what this is what we're thinking about and i i guess maybe jim mercy has decided to be the spokesperson of a lot of other owners in this case the majority of those that are onto this with him you agree with that well, well and i mean even even if that's not what's going on ursay has never been shy about saying what he what he thinks i you know, this is a much different and honestly smaller topic. But I think about, you know, a couple of years ago, um, pre-COVID, you know, he had us all come over to the uh, team facility right before the combine. And the express purpose of it was to, you know, state his case that the NFL should keep the combine in Indianapolis. He's been very outspoken about the NFL screwing the Colts on primetime games. Um, he's just he's just unafraid to say what he, what he's thinking about. So in terms of whether or not it's going on with the other owners, I think him saying that he thinks that there might be the 24 that's probably an indicator that there's something behind it. But I also think this is this is some to some degree just who he is. Uh, he's willing to say what he believes publicly, um, and you know this this is obviously a big big deal. But uh, he's he's done it on some of the smaller stuff too. All right, Joel, the latest quote I just saw from Jeremy Fowler of ESPN, quote uh, from Jim Irsay, some of the things I've heard doesn't represent us at all. I want the American public to know what we're about as owners. I believe it's in the best interest of the National Football League that we look at this squarely in the eyes and deal with it. So that was his latest. Incredibly outspoken today. Yeah, and, you know, it's. Uh, I think that, honestly, with a lot of people – when you uh, with with a lot of people you talk to, sometimes you feel like it's a good interview going for going, in, and then you go back and you type it out, and you're like, well, maybe there wasn't as much in there as I thought when I first listened to it. Ursay is kind of the opposite. Whenever yeah. whenever you talk to Jim, uh, you're like, man, that was really good, and then you type it out, and you're like, how did I miss that? Like there sometimes there's so much stuff that you kind of end up missing parts of it, um, and I think that as you start seeing more transcripts and stuff like that come out, you, there's just it's going to keep going. Uh, I just saw. I actually just saw Stephen Holder from ESPN say every quote I read is more damning than the last. That's that's yeah. kind of what happens when when Ursay has something on his mind. Is you, you start looking at it, and you're like, wow, this is getting he, getting into a bigger and bigger deal. He has definitely escalated this, and and what people around here should get ready for is you're going to have a, again a lot of uh, a lot of slinging his direction um, about the past, and he certainly has. Um, a past with this, but as you mentioned, it's it's a different past than what is being investigated in Washington right now, and it's overall the feeling that uh, clearly that's in the past, and everybody knows that, and he doesn't have too many worries about that, nor any type of you know dirt digging up investigation 
that Daniel Snyder may have waiting for him someplace now. So, yeah, it's uh, it made it a hell of an interesting Tuesday, did it not, here on the 5 o'clock hour? Yeah, absolutely. I I, I honestly was, was picking up my kids and got a text from my boss. It was like, hey, have you seen this yet? And I was like, no. And then I thought, I was like, oh, my goodness, here we go. Yeah. So it's uh, Joel A. Erickson of the Star with us. We'll double back to that in, in a second as the news and the quotes continue to to filter in. But I, I do want to get back to Jacksonville for a moment because I had this on the mind football-wise when I, I knew you were initially going to come on before all this news started breaking out of New York City. And Frank Reich said yesterday regarding the offensive scheme that they utilized on Sunday, it's not sustainable. I'm talking about the no huddle, you know, the the high tempo offense and the 58 passes of Matt Ryan. That's not sustainable. And while I completely agree with that, it seems to me that you have to try to take something out of that particular scheme and or game plan and implement that continuously into the offense because their execution in the second half was as good as we've seen it all year. What are they going to try to take away from what was successful just outside of that high-volume tempo that we saw in that win against Jacksonville on Sunday? I, I think that you'll see that. I think you'll see the know-how. Maybe not all the time. Maybe not quite as high a uh... – a percentage of the time, as you saw it on Sunday, um, you know, if if they get Jonathan Taylor going and they want to do some stuff formationally, maybe you don't see it as often. But they, Frank Reich has has gone heavy no huddle before in his time as an offensive coordinator. He did it with Philip Rivers, uh, not just here, but in San Diego. They, they they did a lot of that, a ton of it in San Diego uh, when he was when he was the offensive coordinator of the Chargers. And I think. I think what you saw out of it, and you know what it kind of unlocks in Matt Ryan and and how it protects the offensive line. I think that they'll they'll continue to use that going forward. Um, I think the other thing is is a lot of that, you know, the quick passing game uh, where you're getting the ball out of Ryan's hands quickly, I think that they don't, they've been trying to kind of get there all season and haven't been able to. Um, but this, this was the most successful it's been, and I think that's something that you carry over too. Um, I, I, as the offensive line didn't give up any sacks. I think they probably feel good about that. I don't think you necessarily can count on it. Uh, Jacksonville's pass rush uh, outside of the first Colts game has not produced a ton of sacks. Uh, and I think you still have to protect this offensive line until you really feel like it's gel. I don't think you can feel that after one, one game. So that some of that quick passing game stuff, getting the ball out of his hands quickly, uh, I think that'll probably stay too. The, the biggest thing that's, that you can't do is, if you throw as many times as they did, uh, as many times as they did over and over again every week, what eventually is going to start happening is defenses are just going to completely build their game plan around taking away the quick game, taking away the passing game, trying to blitz and get there. There were a couple free rushers on Sunday. I mean, Ryan handled them better this time than he had previously, but it felt like as the game went on, Jacksonville tried to dial up more and more as they realized that the Colts were just going to keep throwing. Um, but again, they, at some point they're going to get Jonathan Taylor back. Uh, and you feel like they probably have some stuff that they figured out uh, in the run game maybe coming as well. This is sort of around the time each year when they kind of start to solidify what they're doing on offense. So Joel A. Erickson, the star on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Do you think that that offense, that up-tempo how they were utilizing that, do you think it helped out the offensive line who had clearly their best day? And then part two of that would be, we now know that Dennis Kelly is going to be the starter over at left tackle. How much better 
how much more of an upgrade was he than Pryor and or Ryman that also had a shot over there? Well, the biggest thing is that when Kelly, so, so Ryman, Ryman has the ability, but when he, he's, he's still raw. And so when he misses, he misses big. When Kelly misses, it's not, or at least it didn't look on Sunday as if it's such a, as if it's that big a deal. Um, and then going up tempo, it definitely takes something out of the pass rush. It's, pass rush is uh, an explosive, hard thing to do. That's why teams are always trying to rotate as many pass rushers as they can into the game and, and keep guys fresh because it's, it's really hard to explode out of your stance and go full force effort uh, at the quarterback. It's a little bit different than the offensive line where you're, you're trying to be explosive, you're trying to do all that stuff, but you're not, you're not propelling yourself forward like a sprinter out of the blocks literally on every snap. So you keep those guys out there on the field over and over and over again and it's just it's just hard to keep playing at that le- it's hard to keep playing at that level and when you don't know huddle they can't sub that that makes it harder on them and I, I do think you saw it take something out of the pass rush and I thought that some of the plays later on when they weren't throwing as quick when they were, when Ryan had time in the pocket I think that's that's paying the dividends of what they did early on even when they weren't scoring I think the quick game and everything that they were doing you know, a couple of those drives, the first half drives that didn't score went pretty far. And I think that started to take something out of the Jaguars before they even got to the point where they started scoring. Yeah, it was just um, – it, it, it was. I, I, I loved it. And I'd been screaming for this since basically the half of the Denver game. It's not even so much the up-tempo, which I, I do like. I like the no huddle. But it is the shorter – pass patterns that are being run the, the crossers that have worked really it worked well for michael Pittman jr earlier this year anyway and you still see that working well but i think with this offensive line i don't think this offensive line has improved dramatically i just think the offense and the execution has with the quicker rhythm stuff that we saw on sunday yeah and well one of the questions with matt ryan was will he be able to do that because he didn't do a ton of it in uh, Atlanta that just wasn't the scheme he played in more you know play action get the ball down the field type of schemes um, but uh, you know it's it's something that the Colts thought he could do and we've kind of seen with this offense and it's, it's hard after one game to say that this is going to work this well and keep going this way going forward but we've seen with this offense with the constant rotating at quarterback over and over and over again but sometimes it takes a little while for them to figure stuff out. I mean, we're right around – the sixth game is right around when Phillip Rivers started to hit his stride. Um, remember, they, they had that game in Cleveland where Rivers looked terrible and um, everyone was at everybody's throats. And then right after that is when he kind of found his rhythm. We're kind of in the same part of the season now. And I wonder if Ryan is just starting to feel comfortable. I think the other thing that's happening with the quick game is you can suddenly trust your receivers more than I think most of us realized. Um, Alec Pierce in particular is not necessarily a quick game guy, but anybody can be, he was in Denver. Um, and Paris Campbell having the big game, some of the tight ends, you're starting to see a little bit more production from those guys. that I think most of us were expecting. Yeah. I, uh, um, I, I agree as well. I, I want to see at least the shorter passing game, you know, be something that is sustainable in this case. I, I just don't think the offensive line, um, as far as protection is concerned, I don't think that it's that much of a drastic improvement. I think it was more what they came up with in that many bye week. 
that ended up getting them on Sunday. And hopefully it's more than just a really small sample size. It's something that they can continue to do because certainly they're going to need that down in Tennessee because that game on Sunday is absolutely mammoth. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, you, you have a chance to – it's not just uh, – it's not just um, for the lead at the AFC South. I think most people around here know that. This is this is sort of for – you know, it's, it's crazy that it's happening this early in the season, but this is a chance for the Colts to take back what they haven't had over the last couple of years. Um, and in some ways, this sets up as a game, I think, where you can do some of this stuff again. It's They have not – they have not – the Tennessee's defense has not been good in the secondary. Um, and just overall, and even in, the, even in the first game between these two teams, uh, even in the first uh, matchup between the two teams, they, they got some yards in the passing game. Um, and so I, I think that there's an opportunity to, to do some of this stuff again. They've done it. They've done the short passing game for a couple of games before. And you have to go back to the beginning of 2018 before the offensive line solidified to remember it. But for the first five or six games with Andrew Luck, this is what they were doing to keep him from getting hit. And record-wise, they weren't very they weren't super successful, but they were pretty successful on offense doing that. I think you can you can see you know them kind of going that way because it's what they have to do this season yeah. uh, a little bit longer. Well, and it, it took a, I think you mentioned this earlier too regarding Philip Rivers. It it took a little bit to get used to that, and then. I always thought in large part, one of the reasons why everybody, you know, really placed this offensive line on a pedestal uh, throughout the NFL was more because of the quick rhythm, quick release, getting rid of the football of Phillip Rivers than it was actually just how great the offensive line was. And it's it's almost like you, you saw a little bit of that, not the no huddle style, but a little bit of that on Sunday with what they tried to do with, with Matt Ryan to, to help out that offensive line and, and really to help that offense execute certainly better than it has the entirety of the season so far. Well, and that, that the other thing with that Rivers line is that they had Costanzo at left tackle. Yeah, no and doubt. They just haven't. They just haven't filled that yet. And Frank Reich used to talk over and over again about just how how much having Costanzo made life easier because you just you just as long as as long as he was at left tackle, you just assumed he was going to win almost all the time, and that makes everything else easier. And they they don't have that, haven't had it, you know, since he retired. Um, and so those those two things I think probably lend to them trying to get the ball out quick. Pittman, I mean, and the other thing is the, the physicality of some of these receivers lends to it because, like, we saw we saw it with Pierce in Denver, and we've seen it with Pittman kind of his whole career. You don't have to be that open in the short passing game to get to it. I mean, some of the stuff that Pierce did uh, against Denver was pretty eye-opening to me in terms of just it's a short throw, it's a quick throw, and there's a guy hanging all over him, and he gets the ball anyway. Yeah, I, I agree. I, again, I hope it continues. Uh, you don't know, I guess, if it will or not, if this is maybe, you know, what you really have come to expect here as we approach the middle portion of the season. But, man, uh, is it necessary at the right time? I don't know if I've asked you this question before, and obviously we're thinking about other things regarding Jim Irsay at the owners' meetings in New York City right now. But Jim Irsay in the offseason, we talked about this leading up to that first matchup uh, Tennessee here in Indy early in the season where, to me, I, I called it smitten and or jealous of what the Titans are, what they look like, how they play, how tough and grinding they are, and then the most recent success they have had. W- would you call it that, smitten or kind of
of jealous with the results that this Titans team has had across the board through injuries, whatever the case, it seems like they're able to overcome. Is there a bit of jealousy there? I I think I think the best way to put it is something I always say, even about not just the Colts, but just sports fandom in general. Like, who are the teams that you hate as a fan? It's whoever's in the way. You know, it doesn't even have to necessarily be his, historic if it's if it's someone that's in the way. And the Titans have been in the way for the last couple of years. And I think that's that's part of it. It is jealousy because he does want what they have, but they're the first thing in the way to what. To, to getting to where he wants the Colts to go, that is knocking them off the AFC South crown. And for all we thought, you know, in the first couple of weeks, that maybe that was changing a little bit. Here we are, you know, six weeks in, and it's Colts and Titans again. And yeah, they're in the way. And that's 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 as strong a motivator as anything in sports. So Joel A. Erickson of the Star is with us. I, I do want to get back again because I'm I'm listening to you and asking you questions about Sunday. But as this uh, news and the quotes continue to break in here regarding Jim Irsay at the owners' meetings, the fall owners' meetings in New York City, outspoken today uh, regarding the possibility continued investigation of the removal as owner of Daniel Snyder of the Washington Commanders, and to this point, he is the owner only owner that has been outspoken. Regarding this, I, I just saw this as well. I think this came from Florio and Pro Football Talk that, you know, the, the owners actually get in a room together. And according to his sources, that has yet to happen. So a fly on the wall, I guess, right? <laughs> to be in that room uh, when that ultimately happens with the outspoken Ursay, the rest of the owners, and certainly Daniel Snyder as well. Well, I'm not sure Snyder could be around there. Is he not? Is, he's not a, a part of it. When we were at the owners' meetings in March, the talk was that he has not been around the NFL. Ah, uh, okay. And so I don't think he's. I'm not sure he's around. Well, I I just thought where Florio had referenced at some point that they're going to have to be face to face. I thought that that was probably, a part of what he had said. Probably true, but yeah. but you mean you know you know you don't do you don't do what Ursay did today if no you're doubt. not comfortable with that. No doubt. <laughs> No doubt. Hey, you know, the other thing I the other thing I was thinking of has there any, been anything? And I know what you talked about. You know about you know what Jim feels about you know the the NFL and and how he holds the NFL and the history and and the image of that and within high regard. Is there anything that you know uh, in the short term that he may have had an issue with with Daniel Snyder that maybe we're unaware of? No, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I mean, uh, of anything, of anything in particular. Because I, I don't either. I don't either. I was just all the public stuff that has come out. Yeah, I don't either. I just, it's just um, again. I guess that comes comes with the territory of you know going through something that uh, I won't say shocking, but it's a bit of a surprise on this Tuesday afternoon with these particular quotes. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if. Ursay's outspoken, but I don't think anyone saw this coming just because no one else has done it. This is this is the first, you know? Yeah. That's it. We'll see what else happens. Joel A. Erickson of the Star is with us. Are you expecting both uh, Naheem Hines and Jonathan Taylor to play on Sunday at this point? I I I was not at um, – I, I, uh, my, uh, I had a son born last week, so I wasn't at practice and haven't seen him. Well, congratulations so on that too, so – are you are you back in the fold? Or are you 
hanging out. I'm kind of I'm kind of in and out. I'm helping. I'm I'm doing most of it from home. But um, yeah. Well, congratulations so on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you're probably you're probably a little bit overwhelmed already, and this just kind of adds to it, is what you're saying here, right? Well, you know, it's it's this is the NFL season. This is just what happens. It is. You know, it's, it's just it's like a snowball rolling downhill. Now, do you get to go to Nashville on Sunday? Yeah. Yeah, I should be there. Yeah, well done. Because I think you were up at the press box on Sunday, so obviously you're getting some time to to cover the team at the games, but having to spend time with the family. Hopefully having yeah. a blast and doing it. Yeah, no, it's great. It, he's He's been awesome so far, so it's been, it's been a lot of fun. But, Did- yeah, kind of trying to juggle and stuff. This is the first time I've had a – this is my third third child, and this is the first time I've had one in the middle of the regular season. So. <laughs> Job well done. Stay after it. Uh, appreciate you very much. And, uh, again, congratulations on that. And uh, if you hear anything else regarding what's happening in NYC, please lob us a phone call and let us know because we'll see. I'm, I'm assuming that this is probably not over by a long shot. And then you're considering the commanders coming to Indy in two weeks. So. I would say I would say if people want to know exactly what he said, um, uh, Nikki Jabala, who covers the the Commanders for the Washington Post, has essentially tweeted out a transcript. So if you want to know exactly what he said, it's there. It's on Twitter right now. Uh, that's at Nikki Jabala, N I C K I J H A B V A L A. Gotcha. I appreciate it, Joel. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Yep. Yep. We'll see you. Joel A. Erickson of the Star via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. And our data scientist, Ben Brown, every Tuesday here in the 4 o'clock hour on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Let's get back to Sunday against Jacksonville. Did we see across the board, maybe with the exception of the defense against the run, a lot better numbers for this Colts team? Took the words right out of my mouth. I do think it was, you know, uh, you definitely took the words out of my mouth. It was, you know, Matt Ryan's, I would say, um, best game from a passing perspective, obviously high volume, but no turnover-worthy plays, no sacks. So I do think, you know, overall that speaks to the pass blocking, having a legitimately much better day than what we probably would have even expected heading into it. So it was basically everything but, you know, the run defense. And I think even there were probably some, you know, flashes of quality run defensive play too. Obviously, the, 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 the two long runs early in definitely put the Colts defense and offense kind of behind the eight ball. But uh, I would say overall there was that fourth and one stop on, you know, a run play as well. So it seems to be that they are kind of capable of at least stopping the majority of run plays. It's just, you know, one or two of those are breaking. And I think that's kind of been, you know, the detriment of the defense so far this year. From Pro Football Focus, Ben Brown every Tuesday right here on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. So I had to deal with some jackassery after that game on Sunday because everybody said, you've been too hard on Matt Ryan. Matt Ryan's a lot better than you give him credit for. Matt Ryan is not washed. I want you to compare the numbers of Matt Ryan, the Colts quarterback, on Sunday, and then the overall numbers. How going into the game did you and the numbers view him? And then after that game on Sunday, how do we view him as a quarterback as far as the numbers are concerned right now? Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, I, I think you were very much justified in your critical nature of, you know, Matt Ryan, I would say at the quarterback position, we had him, um, you know, from a PFF passing perspective, we had him, you know, definitely like bottom tier uh, among starting quarterbacks. I think he was like 25th, 26th in PFF passing grade. So, it was very much justified, but I think, you know, the, the, 
the, the, the situation around him wasn't great. It seems like it's gotten, you know, at least a lot better at that secondary wide receiver position over the past couple of weeks. I think the emergence of, you know, Alec Pierce being somewhat of a legitimate threat downfield is opening up things for Michael Pittman. And I think that was kind of where, you know, the offense was overall very successful on Sunday. So I, I think going forward in, in, in quality situations, in quality circumstances, Matt Ryan can still very much be there. But I think the concern, you know, coming out of this game, especially still has to be, you know, if, 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 if Matt Ryan is going to be the sole reason why they win the game, are they actually going to be able to do that? I still think that that is a question that uh, it, it very much still needs to be answered before kind of crowning him as, you know, back or even the Matt Ryan of yesteryear. I would it, say. And I want you to hold on to that one for a moment too, Ben, because I want to move to that and then kind of play off of, of what you just said with this offensive line. I have said all along that this, this team and this offense is going to go as far as this offensive line, the level in which they have played. And as you told us last week, the absolute bottom of the NFL, they played much better, I thought, across the board, especially once Dennis Kelly got in there early in the game at left tackle. Um, is uh, it, Was it more about the offensive line, you think, and how they protected, or more about the offensive changes that they made? You know, the no huddle, the quicker rhythm passes, the, the tempo that they had. Was it more about that or the offensive line just in general from what you saw and the numbers that you're looking at right now play better? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it it was in, in a lot of ways, you know, I would say kind of have to do with the scheme as well. I think, you know, from a from a pure pressure perspective, this was actually, you know, the lowest uh, the lowest time to pressure that Matt Ryan had on the season. So he was very much getting the ball out, uh, I would say, a lot quicker than what he has been in previous weeks. And I do think, you know, that's obviously uh, a big, you know, a testament to, you know, his ability to actually kind of find open receivers underneath. So they were at 2.37 second average time to throw uh, in week six. That is about, uh, you know, four tenths of a second faster than where they were at in week five. And it's, you know, uh, at least a tenth of a second lower than, you know, where they've been at throughout the season. So definitely, you know, much quicker passing attack. I think the, the nice thing is the average depth of target also dropped off a little bit. I think that was, you know, the high volume, you know, headed in Michael Pittman's direction, but I think that is, you know, the secret to how this offense can actually be unlocked. So I do think that that's, you know, obviously helpful to, you know, an offensive line that's struggling. And I do think, you know, outside of, maybe them playing a little bit better. That's the main reason I would say for both, you know, the offensive success, the, the, the lack of sacks that actually happened. And then, you know, Matt Ryan's ability to ability, ability to actually handle some of that pressure situation. What did Dennis Kelly grade out once he entered the game there early for the rookie Bernard Ryman on Sunday? Yeah. Let me see if I can find him. So, um, so Dennis Kelly basically was at, he was pretty good. I mean, so he was at a 70.2 overall uh, offensive grade, which we would say is very much, you know, league average um, pass blocking a little bit above average and, you know, run blocking a little bit below. So I do think, you know, him filling in uh, is very much, I would say, a replacement level player. I do think gave you, you know, average to above average uh, production, at least for one week, high number of, you know, snapping snaps and things like that. So I think, you know, they seem to, at least for one week, kind of have a guy in place that can at least lock down, you know, and solidify that side of the offensive line. I think they absolutely need that, you know, in, in helping Matt Ryan go forward. Yeah, well, and the rest of the offensive line, do you have the individual numbers besides Kelly along that offensive line in front of you right now? If you don't, that's okay, but I'm just kind of curious. And then team-wise for the offensive line, where did they rank with their level of play in week six? Yeah, I mean, so let's look at it here. So we had – 
um, the Colts specifically as basically the 25th best PFF pass blocking grade heading into the season. I think they were or heading into the week. They were kind of a league average um, unit, I would say, from a pet pressure rate perspective, so more close to like 16th, 17th. Um, let's look at their actual individual uh, performance along the offensive line from a pass blocking perspective. Because I do think, like you said, you know, much more interesting, um, you know, scenario for them. So let's pull that up. I would say, uh, and I got some other positions in here, but um, so Braden Smith had, um, I would say, the second best pass blocking grade from a Colts offensive lineman outside of, you know, Quentin Nelson, who we would very much uh, expect to be good. I do think, you know, Dennis Kelly as well had a little bit of a better pass blocking grade than Brain Smith. So Brain Smith was the third best. Um, let me filter down here just one more second. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think overall, you know, the interior, especially along the left side of that offense, played a lot better than uh, we would have expected, basically. So let's see here. Um, we had in week six, Dennis Kelly, like I said, 71.2 pass right. blocking grade. Ryan Kelly, uh, 73.4 pass blocking grade. Once again, that is above average. Uh, Quentin Nelson, 81.0 pass blocking grade. Obviously, you know, the, the consideration at the guard position is a little bit more difficult. But uh, and, and then Braden Smith as well, 68.0. So all of those guys basically right around, uh, I would say, you know, league average from a pass blocking perspective. The, you know, the, the two guys, you know, and, and they really only played – um, how many snaps did they actually play here? Um, but Matt Pryor and Bernard Raymond both really, really poor from a pass blocking perspective. So I do think, you know, yeah. at, at least when they kind of brought new guys in, uh, they, they definitely very much exceeded the expectation that the prior person they had in that role uh you know, it, it was a much bigger improvement. I would yeah, say. Yeah, and again, I, I don't know, and I asked this question. Ben Brown of PFF is with us. Whether or not offensive line-wise that's going to be sustainable. Yeah, hopefully with Dennis right. Kelly it is because that, that certainly has been a position where Chris Ballard has completely either overlooked it or, you know, certainly did not identify it in a fashion in which it was, was necessary. Uh, that has shown to be true. But, yeah, that right guard position a year ago, which was anchored – uh, by Mark Lewinsky, yeah, still continues to struggle, and we saw it again on Sunday. Uh, not team-wise, the team kind of lifted it up, but uh, Matt Pryor at right guard did not have a good effort is what you're saying. Yep, and that's, you know, basically reflected in our uh, grading. And, and like right. you said, I do think, you know, the consideration is how good was, how good specifically is that, you know, defensive front, uh, you know, for the Jaguars. We talked a little bit about it last week, but, uh, they are very much like a league average unit. I do think, you know, kind of heading in, in Tennessee's direction in week seven, they are an above average, you know, pass rush uh, pressure rate type front seven. So I think, you know, this is really going to be uh, the, the test for what I would say is kind of a reconfigured offense line. And we'll see, you know, if, if they pass the test, uh, you know, how successful they can actually be offensively. I, I don't know about you, but with Matt Ryan and Ben Brown again joins us. I, I've said this, because Frank Reich said this yesterday, the Colts head coach, that you know, throwing it 58 times and, and running that no huddle, uh, it, it's not sustainable for this offense. But I, I think being quick, quicker rhythm and shorter pass patterns is something that you have to find sustainable because I, I felt, you know, just beyond the no huddle alone, but just those other aspects that they added in that longer week in preparation for that game against Jacksonville on Sunday, it helped out not only the offense to find a significant rhythm of execution, but certainly helped that offensive line with some of the numbers that you're talking about here. 
Yeah, very much so. And I do think, you know, it, it had to be in some ways. I know Frank Wright can come out and say after the game, oh, we didn't want to throw X number of times. But, you know, their first, I would say, five or so plays on offense were all passing plays. So it does, did seem like they knew how could, they could attack and, and kind of establish that initial rhythm with Matt Ryan and the offense line and the wide receivers. I do think that, you know, going forward, that very much should be the approach week in and week out. And then, you know, when Jonathan Taylor's back in the fold, you mix him in. He's kind of the guy that's salting away victories again like they were last year. And I think, you know, if that plays out and is somewhat successful, that, you know, low average depth of target, rhythm passing game, uh, that's going to be where the Colts are going to be absolutely at, at their best. And I do think that does kind of have to be, you know, the general overarching game plan for this offense to be successful. He is Ben Brown at PFF every Tuesday right here on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. I'm going to give you a minute to look this up and stretch out this question a little bit. Defensive side of the football against the run, it was not good on Sunday. We know that. But DeForest Buckner and Grover Stewart have been consistently good. Buckner in the past couple of weeks and basically Stewart the entirety of the season. Where do those two along that defensive line rank among those other defensive linemen in the NFL, uh, both individually and I guess collectively as of six weeks of the season is concerned, Ben? Yeah, let's, so let me look this up here. I thought you were going to ask more of a team-specific question. But well, that's okay. You can, have, yeah, you can go team defense-wise if you had that in front of you right here. We can go that direction, too. So let's talk, yeah, so let's talk team defense. So we have yep. them, you know, coming out of this – coming out of this week we have them we have the the Colts with the 10th best run defense grade as a unit uh so far this season I think they're 10th basically in EPA allowed per run play as well I think you know the, the interesting thing from my perspective uh is the success rate they they, they basically only allowed you know 35.8 percent of run plays to be successful from an EPA perspective which is the sixth best mark in the NFL so they're very much been i would say in a lot of ways dominant up front especially against the run the one thing again is when a guy does break that second level there really isn't much resistance and then when that happens you know they're ripping off really big chunk plays thankfully you know that that, that's not happening a lot i think they have like the the fourth best i would say what we call it this average depth of tackle basically you take all of the tackles on the run play and on the run play, how often or how low is that average depth where they're actually first making that tackle? Fourth best in the NFL. So I think overall, um, they're very stout against the run. It's just one or two chunk plays have kind of, you know, broken uh, broken open and kind of been, you know, the one detriment to that run defense. And I do think, you know, assigning blame in those situations uh, is definitely an interesting thing. But I think overall as a unit, uh, they have very much, I would say, been successful to start the season. It's uh, Ben Brown of PFF on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. I mentioned this, the entirety of the AFC right now, I kind of want to go here. It looks through the first six weeks of the season that there is a clear front runner, and that is Buffalo, and then basically everybody else is in a particular bucket of teams uh, looking to hopefully take a step forward how close is everything numbers wise within the AFC with the exception of what Buffalo has done in the start in the first six weeks yeah I mean it's been it it very much is Buffalo and everybody else I do think we kind of expected that Um, I I would I would still say that there is you know a a clear number two in Kansas City um, maybe a a little bit behind Buffalo but I do think they are you know very much the the second tier and if they're not with Buffalo in that first year definitely in a second tier of their own and then it's you know there's a there's a conglomerate of teams that we have basically you know with over 50 percent odds to make the playoffs we have you know Tennessee 
very much, you know, those those probabilities are going to shift based on what happens in this matchup against the Indianapolis Colts. And then we right. have, you know, the Chargers, Baltimore, Indy, and, and Cincinnati. And I think if you look at, you know, those five teams there, it's really hard to, you know, you, you can kind of pick and choose what spots you like and who's, who's stronger and what fast to play and all these other things. But uh, I think those five teams, you can very much find, you know, a number of concerns at certain key positions, but also a lot to like at certain key positions. So I think, you know, those five teams especially are, are very much in the same tier, and I'm not quite sure, you know, how those five are really going to break out and who's going to end up in the playoffs and who isn't from that, yeah. that, that tier of team. It seems like that if if you lose, if you're the Colts on the road on Sunday, you're going to have to end up. And, and, again, this is familiar territory for them, and it didn't work out a year ago, but it, it certainly has in the past. I don't know how great it's worked out but certainly two years ago they did go to the postseason when they added a team but you're going to have to end up jumping a lot of teams because that's part of it too I mean along right. the way here as you you know get closer and closer to midseason here you know, the, some other teams are going to separate and you're going to end up having to in this jumbled mess here in the middle have to jump a lot of teams to make it yeah and, and you know the considerations as far as like division you know division finish and those sorts of things actually winning that AFC South the implications are huge in this particular matchup. We have it basically, you know, the Colts right now, um, I, I think we have them basically with uh, a 52% chance of making the playoffs. If they lose here in week seven, that drops to 41%. If they win here in week seven, that jumps all the way up to 72%. So uh, a pretty dramatic swing, I would say, for this early in the season as far as, you know, just how uh, much this particular matchup matters in the grand scheme of things for how successful the Colts can be, you know, in their 2022 season. So ben Brown of PFF on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. Before I let you go, go back to overall quarterback play, because I don't think that uh, I, I got an answer from you on this. Where is, is Matt Ryan overall quarterback play in the NFL through the first six weeks? Yeah, do you want just passing grade or do you want uh, – uh, Is, there an, is, is there an overall grade you hand out with all the quarterbacks in mind, ranking the quarterbacks through the first six weeks? Yes, yeah, so we do – so we do break them up kind of by, I would say, uh, both passing and then rushing the football. So then you see guys, you know, like you know, like Jalen Hurts. Is there a run um, for your life category? Uh, because he may be in that one. I don't know I if mean, he's in the rushing one, but yeah. That's the, yeah, that's the only one that, you know, Matt Ryan, I would say, is, you know, really good in. So um, it, it, or is not going to be all that considering. But we have basically, and this does have some injury situations included, um, we have Matt Ryan as the, uh, let me look here, um, 26th best passing quarterback so far this season. He is uh, sandwiched between Trevor Lawrence and Mac Jones uh, and a little bit ahead of a guy like Russell Wilson and Cooper Rush. So it still hasn't been, you know, all that great. This was by far his best game of the season. Right. Uh, I, I think, you know, in some ways, the one concern I would say, especially in this matchup, was that he was actually – I would say really good under pressure. And I do think that's a little bit unsustainable. So I do think if you, you know, want to take, you know, a glass half empty approach, the fact that he was so successful in pressure situations, you know, in week six, maybe doesn't bode as well for his future prospects and both performing, you know, well in that situation, but also from a clean pocket. We got to keep in mind, this is what I tried to explain to people. You you don't just, eliminate everything that's transpired in the first five weeks because the guy had fumbled right. 11 times and thrown seven right. interceptions and while we all know understandably so that a lot had to do with the play of the offensive line those numbers you know still go in his box score right there yep 
very much so. Very much so. So I think, you know, the, and that's got to be the takeaway. Like, obviously, you don't want to swing too drastically, you know, from one week to the, to the next. And this is very much, you know, the, the team that we were all sweating out painfully, I would say, through the first five weeks of the season. So that those things, those priors still hold. Uh, we can't forget about that based on, you know, one, I would say, you know, quality performance. So we'll see where it stacks up. I think, yeah. you know, more evidence has been that Matt Ryan hasn't been great this year, but, uh, you know, stringing together a few weeks to definitely change the sentiment overall around the league for as far as, you know, just how good Matt Ryan specifically and the Colts in general can be this year. And I, I've said to the folks around here, I understand why you want to be overzealous in saying, I told you so, this guy is really good, but that does not eliminate the first five weeks of play and you know as far as your overall play is concerned you get to string some games like we saw Sunday you get to string some of these things together to get back into what I think a lot of folks would would uh, be a reasonable level of quarterback play for a playoff worthy team correct exactly I exactly I think you know when, when you look at his grade right now I basically said he was you know um 26 all things considered like if you maybe you have a top 10 roster at, you know, essentially every other position, every other key position at least. But I still think, you know, even with the playmakers that the Colts have offensively and defensively outside of the quarterback position, they very much need Matt Ryan at somewhere close to a top 10 quarterback play in order to actually, I would say, make some noise in this AFC playoff picture from my perspective. Yeah, so there's still a lot of work to do, but uh, you got that on Sunday, and they certainly needed it against Jacksonville on Sunday without question. Hey, Ben, before right. I let you go, overall numbers, any surprising numbers? And uh, Mark wanted me to ask you this. Uh, Green Bay and the numbers that we have seen from Aaron Rodgers and the Packers overall this season, how surprisingly bad has it been to this point? It's been bad, to be honest with you. I think, you know, the concern is is that uh, the Packers thought that Aaron Rodgers could win without a legitimate number one wide receiver, a guy who can kind of win over the middle. They thought, you know, Aaron Rodgers probably still had enough in the tank in order to, you know, throw receivers open and, be, and legitimately be, you know, the guy that he was in his MVP type seasons. And he's just, you know, not playing anywhere close to that level. They don't have a guy that, you know, can consistently win on third downs or that Aaron Rodgers even trusts enough to get enough separation to throw to on third downs. So it's bad. I think, you know, there's obviously people who want to pour on both uh, the Packers and the Buccaneers. I very much think, you know, the Packers situation is worse than where the Buccaneers are going to find themselves at uh, at the end of the season. But, uh, I think, you know, that relationship could be, you know, finally running this, you know, or officially maybe over after this year, unfortunately. And I do think, you know, that's uh, an unfortunate ending to this Packers situation, but it's just been, you know, something where Rodgers hasn't necessarily shown that high end ability every single year. He's flashed it at times, but uh, I would very much say over the past five seasons, especially with some of these playoff losses, the, the luster, I would say, as far as him being this elite top three quarterback. Uh, it, it's simply not happening anymore. Some work to do, no doubt about that. Ben Brown of PFF, always on a Tuesday here in the 4 o'clock hour via the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. We'll see if uh, that uh, the quarterback here can work on the 26. But again, at least you're playing off a positive, which has not been the case basically for the weeks prior, even in some wins. So right. at least you're working off a positive. Very much so. I would definitely agree with that. And I do think, you know, the run defense specifically is going to be the key this week against Derrick Henry. I do want to give you this stat. So Grover Stewart, we have him as the 18th best interior defensive lineman in our run defense grade. We have 
Uh, we have DeForest Buckner, basically, I would say 25th in that metric as well. So, uh, you know, Grover Stewart's a guy that's been a little bit above average. I would say DeForest Buckner and run defense, you know, specifically, maybe just a touch, un- uh, maybe just a touch, touch under uh, average. So it's, it's, it's been a spot where they've been pretty good. Uh, and I don't really think, you know, they're the reason for why these big plays have been breaking out, unfortunately. Yeah, so it um, and again the run defense has got you, you saw that that was problematic certainly on Sunday, but uh, those two guys and especially it's been Stewart the entirety of the year. I mean he he's from start yeah. to where we are now been playing at a high level. Buckner, you know I guess he's getting used to that that elbow pad and playing with that elbow situation. The past two he has been a hell of a lot better, no doubt. Right. Very much so. Very much. I agree. I think, you know, Grover Stewart has kind of been the guy, I would say, in, in the interior wise for why they've been, you know, so successful in so many instances against the run this year. So I've been Brown at PFF every Tuesday right here on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. It is always a pleasure. We'll see what happens down in Tennessee on Sunday and sort out those calculated numbers coming up on Tuesday with you. I appreciate it, Ben. Thank you. Thanks, James. You have a great show. That's uh, Ben Brown of Pro Football Focus on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. His name is Greg Rakestraw. He does so many things. It's really tough to bring him in and intro him in the style in which we should. But he's most notably right now the pace. I checked that the Colts post game show host. And I'm assuming everything was bright. Everything was good, jovial, just a feel-good after-party after that game on Sunday. We had two great hours and three dummies at the end. Other than that, it was spectacular. Oh, you have a couple of stragglers there at the end, a couple of... And a couple of people that apparently had too much time to actually contemplate and marinate, you know, what a win felt like and found ways to complain about it. So. <laughs> Wait a minute. Let's just get to talk radio in general. I'm sure that there are probably more than a couple of people that felt that I did that yesterday. It is called whizzing in your Wheaties, and I don't mean to do that, and I certainly don't do that, but I understand where you're coming from. Not right after the game, right. What I basically said, John, to the first guy was, so listen, I said, I want you to call back in when you win the lottery so you can complain about the taxes. And then the second guy was complaining about a lack of leadership and started ripping on DeForest Buckner. I felt the need to point out the fact that I'm like, hey, dude's basically playing with one arm at this point. He has the equivalent of what would be a old clunky ACL tear brace on his elbow to make sure he plays. And he individually made one play that prevented three points because yeah. of where he sacked Trevor Lawrence. Then I had another guy that wanted to bring up Carson Wentz. And I just said, okay, we're done with calls for the night. Uh, All right. Point. So what kind of, what kind of jackass would get on DeForest Buckner for a lack of leadership? I, I, Seriously. I, I mean, what kind of jackass do you have to be to call in with that opinion? It's uh, a great question. Especially uh, playing but, through it, playing through that elbow injury and playing well with that elbow right. injury. Exactly. If there's if there's a couple, if there's one position where you're not questioning the effort of the Indianapolis Colts, it would be the defensive tackle position, given how Buckner and Stewart have played so far this year. Just, uh, but again, you never know what you're getting in the live call-in show. High-level jackassery. Right there. It is. Greg Rakestraw is with us. I did say this, that there is an opportunity. When you look at the AFC, other than Buffalo so far with their level of play, there's zero separation. And you get the opportunity coming up on Sunday to redeem yourself and and really get yourself a little pre-Halloween leverage back. There is so much riding on this game in Nashville Sunday, Greg. Absolutely. Um, Colts had to win that game against Jacksonville. Uh, I would say of a similar ilk 
against Tennessee because you've already given them one in your own place. But I guess big picture, the way I look at it is this. There's no one in the National Football League that I don't feel the Colts couldn't beat on a given Sunday. On the flip side, there is no such thing as a guaranteed win on the remainder of the Indianapolis Colts schedule. And we have used the nauseating cliche week-to-week league for some time. We were immune to that for a long time in Indianapolis. You fell out of bed and won 12 games a year. It's obviously been over a decade ago since that has been the case. But it has never been as much, at least in the case of the Colts, as much of a week-to-week league, and you never know what to expect than what we have in this football team right here. Yeah, and I I think, to me, it starts. I think we can a little more know what to expect if the offensive line combined with the offense and the execution is like what we saw, especially in the second half on Sunday. Agree? Agreed. And and what, what made me so excited about Sunday was now I have seen all three units play a good football game. Not all simultaneously, obviously, because the defense had to carry the mail the first five weeks. Certainly didn't do that as much. Made enough big plays to win it on Sunday. Um, special teams has been more solid than not for the entirety of the season, with the exception of one field goal kick in overtime uh, during week number one. But special teams have largely been good this year. And the offense was finally something better than competent uh, in the way that they played on Sunday. So now I've got the confidence or at least the knowledge that, hey, this group is capable of of being a, an upper half offense in the National Football League. I'm not even sure they need – I think they can be average and be fine. I think that's how good this group is defensively, what they can do on special teams. I now know what this team is capable of in all three phases. It's simply a matter of putting it together on a regular basis. It's like Greg Rakestraw on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. So how much of what we saw from that O-line, protection-wise, execution-wise, was real, including what we saw from that game for the first time in a Colts uniform from Dennis Kelly? I, I think clearly the pass blocking is real. Now, the run blocking needs to be a little bit better. Uh, and, yes, the Colts went away you know, from the rushing game, and obviously so with – you know, 16 carries versus, what, 58 pass attempts, you know, for Matt Ryan in that game. I mean, Jacksonville, I think, is a pretty legitimate defense. Were they as good as, say, the Broncos the week before? No. Um, do I think the Tennessee Titans are maybe in the Jacksonville range, maybe a little bit worse defensively? Yeah, probably. So you're hoping you get Jonathan Taylor back on Sunday. We'll see maybe how much he would help the run-blocking scheme, just having him back out there. No offense to Deion Jackson, who played well the last two games. No offense to Phillip Lindsay, who played well you know, each of the last two games. So the, the pass blocking, obviously, was, was significantly better. Not just no sacks. I don't have the exact amount of pressures off the top of my head. But really, the only time I can think of where pressure made a play against Matt Ryan was you know the intentional grounding he took right. with the blitzer that was unpicked up you know early in that contest. So now now let's see if this group stays together. Uh, you would think it's going to be Dennis Kelly spot at left tackle going forward, uh, and, and let's see what that means for this football team. Yeah, I, I think at the end too, uh, somebody got up the middle around 
Matt Pryor, and that was that low yeah. hit that uh, that Ryan took. But he he had enough on the ball and delivered a a fantastic pass to Alec Pierce, and and that was the game winner. Greg Rakestraw is on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. All right, a couple of expectations later on this week. Jonathan Taylor check on Sunday. Naheem Hines check on Sunday. What do you think is going to be latest on the offensive side of the football? And again, I guess Deion Jackson. I'm going to talk to him tomorrow. He went out of that game on Sunday as well, the level in which you felt he was playing out there for some injured, uh, injured individuals uh, in that backfield. I think over the last two weeks, we have proven that Deion Jackson is a capable NFL running back. If he is your backup or number three, you're in pretty good shape uh, because he got a lot of snaps the last two years in the preseason. And clearly I know that better than most, um, but I'm not sure he did anything to distinguish himself. You just kind of knew the Colts were high on him coming out of Duke. You know, he was an undrafted free agent, but a guy that, frankly, had a little more money offered to him than most undrafted free agents do. Well, he's backed that up with how he's played the last two weeks. Uh, I, I thought he was maybe more Naheem Hines than Naheem Hines has been in terms of a guy that was a difference maker catching the ball out of the backfield. I hope whenever Naheem is back, whether that is this week, next week, whatever, that the Colts can take that blueprint and say, hey, see, we got the ball to number 35 in this fashion. Maybe that's how we treat number 21 and get him more of the ball on a regular basis. Um, in, in terms of my expectation or confidence level, I would say it's close to 100% that, that Jonathan Taylor plays on uh, on Sunday. And Naheem Hines maybe slightly above 50-50s because you never know from, from a concussion protocol standpoint. A couple other things with Greg Rakestraw. What do you think the chances are, the odds are, the Boilermakers make it here for the Big Ten title game? I, I, I mean, it's between them and Illinois, right? Obviously, things can change. But if, if we're talking about Purdue versus Illinois for the Big Ten West Championship, man, you're the mayor of crazy town, uh, you know, when you say that. So um, they've got a shot. Uh, knowing we have seen Purdue step on the banana peel so many times, when frankly they've had better teams than even this one, which is clearly a flawed team, but has the benefit of a user-friendly schedule and does have a lot of offensive playmakers that makes them a fun football team to watch. Um, it's, a, it's honestly the, the logo on the helmet and the name attached to them that gives me pause for not saying they'll be here representing the Big Ten West. Just because, buddy, I have seen this movie script before so many times, and I hope it doesn't happen. I want to see them at Lucas Oil Stadium. I want to see them win the Big Ten West Championship. High school-wise, things get underway, one-and-done tournament style on Friday. Not everybody, but I guess most when it comes right down to it. Um, some things you're looking for on Friday night with these week number one matchups. Yeah, it's all but about 70 or so teams across the state. Nobody in 5A or 6A, the handful of teams that get buys in 1, 2, 3, and 4. My game is going to be Mount Vernon and New Pal. Uh, that game catches my attention. Um, other, otherwise, Danville and Tri-West, a game that, that has my attention in 1A. Two of the best teams will play off the bat in terms of South Putnam and Lutheran, the defending 1A champs. Um, a lot of heavyweight matchups next week in 6A, like Carmel and Westfield, like Ben Davis and Brownsburg. And again, the, the thing that we're talking about going into the 6A tournament is what we talked about from week one on, that there's just not there. You know, Brownsburg was the number one team in the state until their quarterback got hurt. And that played a big factor in HSC being able to come back and beat them last week. Yet. And now HSC, rightfully so, enters as the number one team in the state going into the postseason. 
but um, again, it, it's it's more balance and parity than we have seen more years than not in terms of, of 6A. And I think 5A is going to be wide open as well. Could be even the Whiteland Warriors that could be playing in the state championship game in, in uh, Lucas Oil in about five or six weeks. How about some of those teams in the mid-state? Shout out to the mid-state, huh? Great year for the mid-state. Now, obviously, Mooresville has had it turned around, and Mooresville had success under Mark Bless. Now that Mike Gillen is there, Nick Patterson's a fantastic quarterback. They've got some good athletes. Clearly, they're in 4A. Uh, Franklin has put together a representative program at the 5A level now. Uh, Martinsville has had a really good year, even though I think they've now lost their last couple of games. But, yes, you can see that uh, the, the programs are picking up as the suburbs are expanding in that direction. Yeah. And the mid-state schools are are picking up their level of play in multiple sports across the board. What, what level, speaking of Mooresville really quick, their quarterback Nick Patterson is who you referenced. Yep. What, what level is he uh, college-wise? Is he a college-level quarterback? I've not seen him play. I think he is. Uh, I think there are some larger schools that want him to switch to linebacker or defense. I know he is adamant about playing quarterback. Right. I think he's probably a, a Division II NAIA, Indy, Marion, St. Francis, Indiana Westland. I think he'd make a great quarterback at any of those schools. Maybe, maybe even your Sycamores as well, John. What do you got coming up right, later on this week, this weekend? So Mount Vernon, New Pal yep. on Friday. I get to uh, head with my buddy Squarey and Schultz to Ball State for a little pregame coverage of Ball State Eastern Michigan on Saturday. Uh, and then I get to head to the alma mater, college football, UND and Quincy on Comcast 81 uh, coming up on Saturday night. And then it is, uh, you know, a little road dog work as far as uh, Colts and Titans in Nashville. By the way, you called in the JMV takeover and requested it, tap the bottle and twist the cap. Yes, sir. On on Saturday night, and I had to look through. I did not have an edited version of that, and it clearly needed an edited version. <laughs> I know I because I the song. I'm like, yeah. what needed to be edited from that song? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, there was there was some stuff in there, uh, at least from what okay. I was listening to in the version that I had too. And I I understand because I went from from Paperboy's Diddy to Slam Bionics to Insane in the Brain by Cypress Hill, which would shock probably anybody that's ever tuned right. in to B105.7, but that's what the JMV takeover is about on a one-hitter weekend like that. And uh, it was, it, honestly, it was a good call. I was unprepared to roll it. My bad. So so literally, I actually had a Saturday night off, and so I got in the car, and I hear Cypress Hill on B1057. <laughs> and I look at Amy, I'm like, how many did I have to drink? Because I'm hearing yeah. Cypress Hill on B1057. So I thought, and then I heard you say one hit. I'm like, okay. If we're going to go early 90s hip-hop and R&B, I'm yeah. not sure there's more of a one-hit wonder than young black teenagers. So yeah. I thought that was the way to go. That was a that was a money call. The, the dude, one of the dudes in that was in that um – was it uh, was it the was second house the second house party? Who you're referencing? Yes, and then DJ Scribble was yeah. also a part of that group as well. Yeah. So yeah, I just didn't have my my version was not going to work. However, did you enjoy "Insane in the Brain" with Beavis and Budhead remixed in it? That was pretty sweet, huh? Of course, I did. Oh, yeah, I appreciate you, man. Thanks, Greg. See you, pal. Greg Rakestraw on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Potline. 